0: Welcome! Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Ventures, we start this new series. I'm excited because uh, it's in one of my favorite parts of the Bible. We're going to spend some time there. And I've entitled the series, Reframe. And you think about reframing something or a change of perspective. Sometimes you can be looking at the exact same thing But when you reframe it or you change the perspective, it changes everything. A lot of you know this optical illusion. It's one of the most famous in it. And as you look at the picture, I don't know what you saw when it first came up. My eyes immediately go to this older woman. You can kind of see there's her eye and her nose got a little wart on it and kind of the grim smile with it. That picture's there. But if you look at it long enough, it, it can kind of change everything. In fact, if I cover up this part of it, You start to see a younger woman, and there's her eyelash, and she's looking that direction. You can barely see her nose and a a necklace, her cheek. I mean, the exact same picture in one minute, it it flips back and forth. And and I think the same is true for us a lot in life, especially as Christians. We're, We're looking out at the world, and we're seeing the same circumstances. But there's a better way of looking at it. Honestly, if you, you look in Scripture, there's a better way of viewing life. And so when we use that, that image, when I say reframe, I, I mean to see the current situation from a different perspective. And I told you the book of Philippians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's a little book. It's only four chapters. And uh, this summer when I was on vacation, I, I just started reading through the whole book over and over again. And, and it struck me how powerful this little book is. It struck me how how many verses I had memorized I'd known out of it. I think you'll be surprised over the course of this series. I think it's one of the most quoted books in all the Bible because it it brings such a unique perspective, especially when it comes to the issue of joy. How can you face life, face your circumstance, but instead of seeing all the trouble, instead of always just feeling oppressed with the pain and everything going on, How could I, especially as a Christian, view it joyfully? And you see in this, this theme of joy that comes over and over again. Now, when I say that, I want to make sure we define our terms well, because a lot of times we kind of mix up joy and happiness. And so when you say joy, people kind of think happy, clappy, and you're supposed to be up all the time. There's a difference here. When I say happiness is based on what happens to you. It's based on your external circumstances. That, that hap is an old word for chance. So what, what might happen in that? And so what happens to you, and, and you kind of see the root in it, my happiness can be based on circumstances. And so I win the lottery. <laughs> I'm really happy. I lost the ticket. I'm not happy. I have a great day at work. I'm happy. My boss yells at me. I'm not happy. I mean, you, you can see in that and hear me, there's nothing wrong with happiness. There's certainly nothing wrong with happiness. And sometimes based on what's going on in our life, it's, it's reasonable to respond to it in those ways. That's like everybody. H- happiness, though, is interesting. It, it's one of the most elusive things in the world in that the more you chase it, the harder it is to actually get it. That's why when the Bible talks about joy, it's talking about something different that's not based on external circumstances. Happiness is based on what happens to you. Joy is based on what Christ is doing in you. And and that's why I think it's important to make the distinction, I may even be going through a sad season of life. Some of you, maybe you're struggling with sadness, and you should. There's nothing about this series that says, oh, nobody's ever allowed to be sad. If anything, as a Christian, man, we wrestle with, we mourn, we mourn with others, we hurt with others. I mean, the Bible says, weep with those who weep. The unique thing, though, is even in a sad season, I can experience joy. As we go through this, you're going to see how the Apostle Paul uniquely teaches this. And I think even knowing some of the background of the book, it helps frame it because you might think he was in a great season of life, and that's why he wrote the book of Philippians. Actually, going to the background, look at the first couple of verses. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's writing this, give you a little background, he's writing it in 62 AD. He is a prisoner in Rome. Now, he had planted the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey about 13 years before the book was written. And so 13 years earlier, Paul had come to Macedonia, that northern part, north of Greece in there, northern part of modern Greece. And as he came to Philippi, usually when he came into the city, he looked for a synagogue. And if there was a synagogue, then he would teach there. And then out of that, find those who were open to Christianity and start the church. Philippi didn't even have a synagogue. That shows you how few people followed even the Jewish faith in it. He found one little group, a group of women who had a Bible study. They would study the Old Testament scriptures under a group of trees. And in that group, there was a woman named Lydia. She becomes one of the greatest leaders in the New Testament. And Lydia had a big home. She invited Paul to stay there so that he could plant the church there. And the combination of those women, and then also, you remember while he was in Philippi, if you know the story, he also had a confrontation where there was this little demon-possessed girl that was being exploited. They would use her for her abilities through the demons. And Paul cast the demons out, and it made the authorities so mad, they threw him in prison. And while he was in prison, he and Silas, they're singing. There's an earthquake. The jailer comes. He thinks they've escaped. And Paul's able to use that situation in order to share the gospel with him. And so that jailer and his family became Christians. So so you got this little group. You've got this this group of women who are part of that study. You've got the jailer and his family. And, And out of that, this church, the Philippian church was formed. And over the years, it wasn't the wealthiest church. It wasn't the biggest church. But it's one of the churches that Paul loved the most. So here he is 13 years later, and he's a prisoner in Rome. He's waiting for his verdict from Caesar. He doesn't know if he's going to be killed. He's literally chained to a guard every day. So he's living under the stress of that. These aren't great circumstances. Paul had always dreamed of going to Rome as a preacher. He finds himself there as a prisoner. See, here's what I just want you to feel in this. When he's writing this letter, it's not because, oh, life is so great for him right now. He's joyful. Everything's worked out. So of course he's writing about joy. He's writing as a prisoner. He's writing to a church that's facing its own struggles. But boy, you read line after line, and you hear the heart of a guy who who loves them, and he's so thankful for them. In fact, read with me as he continues on. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I I love this line. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He says, every time I think of you, I thank God. I mean, you have those kind of people in your life? Now, there's some people in our life, they make us thank God, maybe for the wrong reason. Uh, Sometimes I'll interact with somebody and I'll say to myself, well, thank God I don't have to deal with them every day. Or, you know, sometimes I'll meet somebody and I'll go, oh, thank God I am not married to her. <laughs> She's a piece of work. Uh, and Maybe I shouldn't admit that out loud, but I, I will. I'll go home, give Leah a kiss, and, uh, and she'll say, what's that for? And I go, just thanking God, thanking God with it. Now, you have those thoughts, too. Maybe you have those people in it. These aren't those kind of people. He's not thanking God because he doesn't have to deal with them. He, he's thanking God because of who they are. In fact, he continues on. Look how much he loves them. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, literally he says, I have so much affection for you. And so so when you look at this group, here's what he's saying with it. They're the kind of people that always make you thank God for them. I don't know if you have those people in your life or not. The, the kind of people that when they come to mind, you, you just thank God for them. And, and part of it is, look at the characteristics of them. They share in the same faith. He says, you and I, we have the same grace. We've experienced that together. And, and it's one of the things I know to be true, that as Christians, man, I mean, there's a base that comes being in Christ together that gives you that connection. Uh, The other thing with this church in particular, they partnered together with you. They were partners with Paul. Uh, You're going to see in this, the Philippian church was one of the ones that were the quickest. They would give money generously to Paul. They'd give money away to others. Now, they didn't have a lot, but they were generous. So it's not just in name only. There's real partnership with it. The third thing that you say about this church, they stick up for you in the hard times. Paul says, you're one of the few that, man, in my imprisonment, you still stood up for me. You spoke up for me. See, this is a period in Paul's life. He wasn't always popular. A lot of people didn't like it because he he spoke so forthrightly. He spoke so straight and true. And so some of the churches turned on him. And Philippi was one of those churches that, that here in the hard times, they're with him. You know, as I look at this list and and I look at these kind of people and just even as I was doing my study this week on this, these characteristics, this list reminded me of Venture. And and it reminded me of the people of Venture. It reminded me how thankful I am for you guys and thankful for this church. Because especially all that we've gone through in the last year and a half, I, I love that we've stayed together in faith. Man, Jesus Christ has been our rallying point. I love, and I am so thankful that you guys, you've partnered together with us. I mean, I look at last year, and, and our church support us. We met budget for the year. That doesn't even count the, the 565000 that you gave on top of that that we were able to give away for COVID. There's just this, this heart of partnership, even during a time when we weren't able to meet on this campus. There's this sense of sticking up for you in the hard times, that we stick together. And I I had that sense, you know, last weekend was our first time in the worship center, and we were able to worship there. And if you've not been a part of it, we'd love to have you on a a Sunday morning with us. But as I looked around the room, as I saw the people there, there was just this overwhelming sense of gratitude. This this sense like Paul talks about that I just go, man, thank God for these people. Thank God for the privilege and be able to do life. And stick together in that. And, and it gives me such such excitement about what our future holds as a church. Because I see a church full of these kind of people. And, and you just need to know as a leadership team, as a pastor, we don't take that for granted. We know what that means. Now we've been talking about that as a church, but really before we move on, I, I want to make sure, do you have these kind of people in your life personally? Because everybody needs it. and I want to really say this to young people especially. You're not going to make it as a young person, as a Christian especially, if you don't have these kind of people. People that share your faith. People that will partner with you. People that stick up for you. And so I'd really encourage, I I mean, it's great for each of us to go, man, who are the people in my life that I would go, man, I thank God they're there. I wouldn't make it without them. And maybe the, the greater question is the second one. Are you this kind of person for someone else? Are you doing this for somebody else? And so I, I, I'd encourage you, maybe it's today or sometime this week, it, it'd be great to stop and think about both those questions and think about, okay, who are those people? And maybe reach out to them and go, you know, I want to thank you. I couldn't make it without you. Let them know that. The, the flip side Who are the people that you would go, man, I need to step up for them. I need to stick with them. I need to encourage them this week. I love that Paul, when he's writing this letter, this letter on joy, man, he starts it by thanking these people for what they mean to him, for what they've done for him. And and in the middle of it, he puts one verse. I skipped over verse 6 because it's really the heart of the passage. In fact, I call it, you can see in your notes, I call it the reframe verse of the week. Every week during this whole series, there's going to be one verse that we focus on in particular. Now, a lot of times you'll be familiar with these verses. Like I said, this is one of the most quoted books in all the Bible. But I want us to look at this, and I'm going to encourage you, what I'm doing for each of these verses each week, I'm memorizing this verse. I want this. I'm going to rehearse it every day because, remember, my goal is I want to reframe the way I'm looking at my circumstances. I I want to look out at life and I want to experience the kind of joy that Paul had. And so I do it by taking his words and I memorize it. And, And so this is the verse I want you to memorize. Look what he says in the middle of this. Paul says, I am sure of this. I have absolute confidence of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I want to go a little slower with this verse because it is so important. Paul says, I'm sure of this. I've got complete confidence. I don't worry about this at all. This is what I can take to the bank. And and notice what his confidence is based on. It's not based on the fact that the Philippians are such a great church. They're such great people. No, his confidence isn't based on them at all. He says, I'm confident that he, he's talking about God, that God who began a good work in you. Now, what's this good work he's talking about? He's talking about their salvation. If you know Paul, especially, he's not one to say that we're good in of ourselves. Paul Paul points out the fact there's no inherent goodness that was in us. All of it has been tainted by sin. All of sin, all fall short of the glory of God. So when he talks about this good work, he's talking about what God did in our salvation. He says this good work in in you, and he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what's the day of Christ Jesus? That's the day of his second coming. And so at his second coming, this salvation that has been started in us is going to reach full completion. And it's in process until then. And so as you think about it, let me just explain it theologically. As you think about it, a lot of times people will say when they talk about salvation, we we always think of, you know, that one day you say that one prayer, you get forgiven. Paul is pointing out, he goes, oh, no, no, it's a whole process. It's a lifetime process that will literally go all the way to the point when Jesus returns. And so a lot of people will put it this way. They'll say, I am saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. Now, what do they mean? When you say, I am saved, or I was saved, it's talking about your justification. It's talking about that forgiveness you received. The moment that you received that gift from Christ, you were saved. God says you are righteous, and that's never taken away. That's done. That's justification. There's a second part of it, and that's the part that's going on right now. They call it sanctification. That's that process where God is making me look more like Jesus. And my character's being changed by him. And he uses life circumstances. He uses what's going on. He uses his word. He uses the Holy Spirit. And I'm being saved. And then there's a third part that will happen the day that Jesus comes back. That's called, it's called glorification, or I'm going to be glorified. And what that means is literally I'll get a new body. I'll get a glorified body. I'll get my body for all eternity. So that he not only saves me spiritually and at a soul level, but he's going to save me physically as well. All of those things are happening. And Paul says, I am so confident of this, that the God who started this work, it started with him, is the God who's continuing to do this work. And he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to finish what he started in you. And it's a process along the way. So you don't need to get discouraged in it. You don't have to be fearful about every part of it. I I love the story that Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, she was driving one day in North Carolina where they lived and on the interstate, there was all this construction. And she got to the end and saw this sign. And when she saw the sign, she said, that is what I want on my epitaph. And so if you go and see where she's buried on her epitaph, it says the words she saw on that sign, you know, what she had put there, it says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. I mean, it was her, her way of declaring that, man, I have been in construction. God has been doing this work of me over a lifetime. And sometimes you got to be patient with me in the process. But the, the truth of knowing this. And again, I'll come back to the whole point of having more joy. See, this is so important when you think about having a joyful life and being a joyful Christian. Because see, I think this verse confronts the joyless Christianity that you see in a lot in the church today. If we're honest, there's a lot of joyless Christianity. There's a lot of fearful Christianity. There's a lot of all angry Christianity. All these things. It it probably is not the first word that people would use to describe Christians today. Joyful. And when I look at it, I, I think there's three forms of joyless Christianity that can take root. And this verse addresses all three. The first form is those who are spiritually arrogant, when you get spiritually arrogant, when you think you've arrived, when when and, and it's easy to get there because those who've maybe been around the church a long time, or we know a lot of the Bible, or we have all the right answers for everything. And the reality, when you get spiritually arrogant, man, you're some of the most joyless Christians in the world. You look in the Bible, the most joyless followers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who had reached a point of spiritual arrogance and they use that spiritual knowledge, they use that spiritual pride to look down on others and judge others. And, and it can hit that point where you, you know so much that at some point you become unteachable. Like every time you're taught anything, it's it's not really whether it changes your spiritual life. It's, well, can you say something I haven't learned before? Or this quest that I always want to be deeper and deeper all the time. And everything's about knowledge that much more. And, and it can reach a point, and here, here's where I've seen it most damaging. Nobody wants to be authentic around you. Nobody really wants to confess what's going on in their life because they don't feel like, man, are they going to get an attitude that supports them or somebody that looks down on them? And so maybe somebody's struggling with their purity and their lust. And, and when the only answer they get is this sense of, well, I remember when I struggled with those things. Somebody struggling in their marriage or with their kids. And, and there's almost an attitude of, if you would just try harder, if you would do what I did, you can get to where I am. See, this is why I like this verse, because I think it totally cuts the legs out on, of spiritual arrogance. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, if there is a good work in you, it's not because you did it, it's because God did it. You were as wretched as the rest of us. And the only reason there's any good in you is because Jesus Christ loved you enough that He did a good work in you. And the only reason you follow Him today is He keeps doing that good work in you. And so every one of us needs the same posture of spiritual humility, spiritual humility, that we all desperately need Him. There's no place for spiritual arrogance in the church. And I promise, if you drift in that, if you start thinking spiritually, I'm kind of a big deal, it will kill your joy immediately. It's one of the most joyless ways of living the Christian life. Now, the other end of the spectrum as well, though, those who are spiritually anxious. These aren't the ones who are spiritually arrogant. They go to the other end. of the These are the ones, and I know a lot of Christians who live in this place, where they're always anxious that I didn't do enough. They're always anxious that maybe I sin too much. Maybe God's done with me. And maybe I'll walk away from my faith. Maybe I didn't really believe. Maybe I'm one of the ones that Jesus is going to look at and say, depart from me, I didn't really know you. And they live under this fear all the time that they don't measure up. They live under this fear all the time that I'm not enough in it. And they feel spiritually anxious. Guys, this verse is for you too. Remember what it said? He who began a good work in you. If you feel like you didn't measure up, listen to me, look at me. You didn't. You never measured up. And here's the reality. You never will. But Jesus did. And Jesus paid for you. And Jesus did a good work in you. And Jesus is not done with you. And he's not going to give up on you until the day of completion. He's going to finish his work. So you have to live in that fear all the time. And when the enemy attacks you and you think you've sinned one too many times, or you're struggling with the same thing too much, or he's trying to convince you that you're not really God's child. man, you need to go back to this verse and go, uh, uh-uh, no, here's my confidence. He who began a good work in me, he's going to complete it. See, that's why you need to know this. One more category as well, the spiritually apathetic. And this is the group, you might be tempted. You look at this verse and you go, yeah, I like this verse. God began the work. God's going to do the work. I'll just leave it in God's hands. And I don't get too torqued. I don't get too worried about my spiritual life. And and it's this mentality of, you know, I kind of have a basic belief. I know Jesus died. I kind of believe on that. I did the prayer. I'm good. But otherwise, I'm going to just live life. And I'm not gonna to worry too much about growing. I'm not gonna to worry too much about really putting myself toward this. I'm not gonna worry about spirituality. I'm in the club and that's good enough for me. And I'm telling you, if you have that kind of attitude, man, you, you would do well to stop and go, wait, let's look at this verse again. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it, is going to bring it to completion. Here's what it's declaring. That if God started something in you, he's going to finish it completely. And do you think God does anything half-hearted? You think God wants any of his children, he looks at them and goes, oh, as long as they're in the club, I'm good with them. I'm telling you, and, and you need to hear me on this. If you're here and you kind of go, you know, I got the basic belief, but I'm not really concerned about growing any. I'm not really concerned about what the Bible says. I'm not really concerned about being involved in church and some of the stuff, all that stuff. I don't want to be involved in that. You might do well to look under the spiritual hood. You may not have the spiritual engine you think you have. There may not be that work in you. Now, as I say that, I know the spiritually anxious crowd, you're freaking out right now. You go, maybe he's talking about me. Maybe I don't have it. I'm not talking about you. The fact that you are so concerned about it shows that you've got a conscience that's that's alive by the Holy Spirit. I'm talking to a group, and I think we we have them, they've been around church a lot, that as long as I've punched a spiritual ticket somewhere and I got a ticket to heaven, I'm good with it. That's not what this verse says. This verse says that God not only began the work, He continues the work. And maybe you need to examine it. See, see this verse hits head on all of these things because none of us were meant to just be spiritually apathetic or live in anxiety or live in arrogance. All of us, and you'll see this in the book, Paul has this mentality that none of us have arrived. We keep growing. In fact, I want to finish out, look at his prayer. Look at his prayer for the Philippians as he finishes. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I mean, he says, I am praying for you guys. And as I pray over you, this is how I want you guys to keep growing. I'm absolutely confident God's doing his work and he's going to complete it. But here's what it looks like. And I would encourage you, I put a little checklist. You can see it in your notes there. If you look at this, Maybe sometimes you ask yourself, man, I want to grow. What does it look like to grow? Here's a great list of what you should grow in. I mean, you look at it. Look at the first thing he says. You need to grow in sacrificial love, that your love may abound more and more. And when he uses that line, your love may abound, he's not talking about the sentiment of love, that I just feel love. This word is agape. This is sacrifice. And so Paul says, hey, you know how you guys need to grow? You need to be sacrificing more. You need to be serving more. You need to grow in a way that you're giving your life away. It's a great area of growth. Look at the second thing with that, though. You need to know the truth and you need to know how to apply it. You need knowledge and discernment. That's what those two things are. Knowledge is knowing the truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You need to know your Bible. You need to know those doctrines. You do need to get deeper. You do need to be able to understand it and read it and do that. But it's not for knowledge's sake. It's so that it leads to discernment that I know the truth and then I know how to apply it in life. I know how to think biblically. I know how to approach situations in life. So that the third part of it, your choices are based on God's standards. He says, so that you approve what is excellent. That's what that means. That when I have a choice in life, I'm no longer looking at it based on just what I think or feel. Okay, what does God say about this? What's God's standard in that? See, that's what growth looks like. And then it continues on with this, so that there's evidence of fruit of what Christ is doing in you. That's all fruit is. When you see fruit in Scripture, it's just evidence. And so he says, you're filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit has grown in your life. I mean, if you come to a fruit tree or this summer, I planted some tomato plants and I put miracle Grow on it. And man, they immediately got really tall, a lot taller than I expected them to be. And it was great. They were leafy and they're tall. But at the end of the day, I planted the tomato plants for one reason. I wanted tomatoes. And so I'm watching every day. Man, is there evidence That this plant is healthy it's life and it's actually producing fruit and so paul says that hey this is what growth looks like in your life that you were designed as a christian to produce fruit i mean the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness self-control the fruit of good works paul says i want to see you grow in that the final part of it is to the glory of god and praise of god so that you're bringing greater glory to God. Now, again, I told you that's a great checklist for growth. And I'd encourage you, you can look through that and go, man, God, I want to grow in these ways. But hear me on this, because this is a really important point. When Paul prays this for them, this isn't a list. This isn't a prayer of correction. He's not praying it because there's something wrong with them. It's a prayer of affection. He's praying it because he loves them so much. And, and so much is right about him. He says, yeah, I am so confident with you guys. Christ began a good work in you. And he's going to bring it to completion. And here's what it looks like when that's happening in your life. And don't you want that? Don't, don't you want to experience that? That's why I want to go back to our reframe verse of the week. And so even as I say, and, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, I love this one word in it, completion. He's going to bring it to completion. That root word in Greek, it's the same root word that Jesus uses when he was on the cross. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and, and right before he died, he said a little line, he said, it is finished. The Greek word is "to tetelestai. Literally, what he is saying? It's complete. It's complete. I completed everything that I needed to do on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. It was done. And I love in the same way that Jesus completed his work. God's making a promise to us that he will complete us. He's not going to leave any part undone. And and He uses this lifetime that we're in. He uses our experiences, good and bad. He uses the good days and the hard days. The great times and the painful times. To complete us. To make us more like Jesus. And so, So I don't have to look around and find my happiness based on what's happening. I can find my joy knowing that he's doing this process in my life. You know, great picture of this. uh, uh, Michelangelo, many say the greatest sculptor ever in the world. Certainly one of the fathers of the Italian Renaissance that came. In uh, 1498, August 27th of 1498, he completed one of his greatest works, the Pieta. It's a sculpture of Mary and Jesus. And uh, many acclaimed it around the world and and hold it as the highest standard. The process of that sculpture, it began years earlier. He went to Carrara because he wanted the finest granite. And so he got that marble, the stone, and, and the huge block that they were able to get out of the quarry. And he brought it to his studio. And then for two years, through cold, through heat, he just was working away. If you had watched him during that process, his main tool was his hammer. That hammer hitting over and over again at the stone. All the different kind of chisels, some more pointed, some flat, some had serrated edge. Each of them produced a little bit different result. But the final product was to take this rough piece of marble And turn it into this beautiful masterpiece. You know, if you watch the process at times, it it would feel like it was almost violent. I mean, as he would take a hammer and he would strike and, and rock would break away. I mean, if you were the stone itself, you would feel those blows and you'd wonder, is there any purpose to this? You know, it's a great picture of how God shapes our lives a great picture of this process that we're talking that God who began a good work in you he he is faithfully completing it and he's using every part of life sometimes those blows they feel painful sometimes you can't even understand why, why would he let me experience that but I can promise you this every blow every tool every experience is shaping you, it's shaping me to look more like Jesus. How would it reframe the way we view every day of life that instead of just responding to our circumstances and deciding whether it's good or bad, whether I'm happy or not, how would it change it if I looked at all of it as a God who loves me Christ who died for me, who completed His work on that cross. And a God who's using every day of my life, every experience, to shape me to be more like Him. See, I have absolute confidence in this. That He who began that good work will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. I hope you've experienced that. I hope you can embrace that. Literally, my prayer for all of us is that verse would reframe the way we see life. you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for Jesus. I thank you for how he uh, changes everything. Because he was willing to die on a cross and stay there and experience it all until the point that he could cry out, it is finished. That I can have confidence that He is doing His good work in me, that I will be finished to look like Him. Lord, I I pray for each of us as we go through this series. I pray these verses would not just be something that uh, we remember, but they really would change the way I see life, the way we see life, that our perspective could be marked by joy, not based on what's going on in the world, but based on what Christ is doing in our lives. And we pray this in His name we hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith to keep up with the latest messages and what's happening make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc